Turn with me, if you can, to Daniel, uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Uh, let's go ahead and read this together. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to the king to tell him his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and then we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall, sh- I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of a magician or enchanter or Chaldean, the thing that the king's asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the, king of the, king's, uh, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested to the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and, thus, and, and, thus, uh, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? 
Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle, the thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone struck the image, became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Let's pray together. Our heavenly father, we honor you. We see before us the glory of you 
O Lord, God of heaven, the one who reveals mysteries, the one who is above all, above all the kingdoms of the world, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, even America. Lord, you rule over all, and kingdoms come and they go, and yet you remain. Your kingdom remains. Lord, help us as we read this passage, as we worship together, as we hear from it and hear from you. And we ask your help in this, and we say this in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few caveats before we kind of dive into verse 1 here. Um, This chapter is primarily about God, right? (laughs) Most of the Bible is, is, is really what it's aiming at, is it's to glorify God, to teach us about God and his ways and his goodness, his sovereignty, his kindness and compassion. And this chapter does that. But there are moral lessons too. So I don't want, we don't want to moralize this chapter, but also we actually don't want to miss ways in which the author wants us to imitate uh, good, good things from, that we see from Daniel and his friends and others. Um, the second thing is I really want to impress upon you that it's not a newspaper. It's not re- meant to be read like a newspaper or you know a, a chemistry article. Um, it is meant to be comic and and funny, and and it's supposed to. You're supposed to laugh at times. So if you find yourself laughing at some of this dialogue, that's that's okay. Don't stop yourself. Uh, the the author wants you to laugh, and the way it was written is is to laugh and to enjoy it. But there's also times of sobriety too. Um, and so with those two things in mind, let's let's dive in. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. We just finished off of chapter one and. Daniel had that conflict, and he refused to eat at the king's table. And in fact, that whole thing turned around, and instead of getting in trouble, right, we see that he was honored, and we're told that he was ten times wiser than all the men of Babylon. And that's really the setting. That's what gets us to this point. But things are not so well again. We we get another conflict. It says that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, right, or he had a dream. Some translations literally say that his heart pounded and his sleep was ruined. And what I want to impress upon you is this dream that we're told about is not just like, oh, that was interesting. I'm kind of curious about that now. I wonder what this dream might tell me about something like, no, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has is life-shattering for him. It's it's a dream that's upsetting him in a cosmic way. He is is upset. He cannot sleep. this This has wrecked his life, you know, and I'm sure you've had dreams that are just so vivid, so real, so dark so horrific that they stay with you when you're awake. And you might even wake up shaking or shivering or, or weeping. And, and even when, when someone comes to you and they say, it was just a dream, it was just a dream, it takes you a moment to actually literally believe that that thing that you experienced really was a dream. It's, it's, it's stuck to you. You feel it. This is, is what we're supposed to feel about Nebuchadnezzar, this king, this, this high king of Babylon. This is the kind of dream he has, and he's not going to put a stop to anything until he figures this thing out because it's wrecking his life. And so he summons all of his magicians and enchanters, all of these people uh, in the ancient Near East who had connections to the gods, and they would throw bones and chop open livers and see what shape they made, and that was the way that the gods would discuss and communicate with mankind about, you know, what was to come and who was going to be the next king and who was going to be powerful and great and who was going to defeat each other in war. And so there was these, always among a king's court, these wise men who were close to the gods, who could tell the king what was to come, right? So he summons them and he says, I had a dream, I'm troubled, I want you to tell me what it is. And they say, oh, king, live forever, right? Courtly language, flattering the king. 
We want you to live forever. Even if they don't want the king to live forever, they tell him they want him to live forever because he's the king, right? That's what you do. So, hey, king, live forever, man. I hope you, you keep going forever. And uh, tell us the dream, and, and we'll give it to you, right, in verse 4. Tell us the dream. We'll tell you the interpretation. But they get a surprise, and this is where things get, go from bad to worse. He says, no, I, I know what, how you guys do it, <laughs> right? I tell you how everything works, and then you kind of come up with something neat in your head, and you spit it back to me. I want something more real than that. This dream is big stuff. I want you to really tell me what's going on. So he says, if you don't make the dream and the interpretation known, I'll literally tear you to pieces. And this kind of stuff happened in the ancient Near East. People were uh, impaled on spikes and poles, and there's horrible forms of, of a king's use of his own sovereignty. So this is, this is not something that... that it's shocking to us when we read it, but it's not shocking in the ancient world. Literally, uh, and I had to study a little bit of Aramaic because I don't know Aramaic, so I had to learn a little bit of stuff. Literally, uh, the words here mean I'm going to make you into limbs. They're going to be made limbs. So the king is like, yeah, if you don't tell me, I'm going to turn you into a pile of legs and arms. And that probably that gets their attention, right? They're like, good night. You know, he says, but if you do show me, then I'll reward you, and I'll give you gold, and, and uh, you know, this and that, and uh, you'll be great, and, and things like that. And so, uh, ironically and funnily, funny, after he finishes this, this incredible uh, sovereign threat, he says, so sh- show me the dream and the interpretation, right? That's the best choice. So he suggests to them the best, the best choice. So your best choice here is to just tell me the dream and its interpretation. He leaves them this ultimatum. They're in trouble. In verse 7, they, they try again, and it's literally basically verbatim. Just tell us, King, just tell us the dream, and, uh, and, it's interp- and then we'll, we'll work on the interpretation part. That's what we do. And here's where Nebuchadnezzar really comes, comes sort of unhinged here. And we can tell by what he says. He says, you're just trying to buy time. You know, you're just trying to buy time. I know what you're doing. And, and he comes across as kind of, um, he's paranoid. He's anxious. He, he thinks the gods have it out for him. Whatever this dream was, he thinks it's a, he, we can tell that he feels that it's against him because he's interpreting, literally, they, they've said nothing but tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. They've said nothing else but that. And look what he says in verse 9. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words. I love that. You have agreed to lie to me. You, you lied to me. They, they really haven't even asserted anything. They've just asked. They've just made a request, right? He says, you've lied to me. You're corrupt, and you're just waiting time till things change around, right? And we tell the times change. Well, what is that? Well, we kind of know what that means if we jump forward to verse 21, right? Well, what does God do? He raises up kings, and he brings them down. Changes what? Times and seasons. So what is the king worried about? There's another king who's going to supplant me. There's another nation who's going to come in and knock me over. Right, because Babylon has swooped in and taken Judah out and taken out Assyria, and now they've planted themselves in place of other nations. And so Nebuchadnezzar's like, well, who's, who's coming behind me? Right? Is somebody going to take me out? Right? So you guys are just buying time until the next king rolls in, and then you can, you can tell him to live forever too. Right? So he's paranoid. He's worried, and he, he charges them with a the conspiracy. And in verse 10, that now they've got, they've got to say something. Right? So they say, look, this isn't possible. No man on earth can do this. And then they, they revert to flattering him again. I love that. For, for no great and powerful king like you has ever asked stuff like this, right? How can we know this? Only the gods can know what happened in your head. Only the gods can know what you dreamed. We can't know that. But in fact, Nebuchadnezzar 
kind of upset for a good reason because you're the ones who talk to the gods, right? Why can't they tell you what I dreamed? They're the one who gave me the dream. Why can't they tell you, right? So he's kind of, he's a little upset. He's got a defunct court. They don't work. His, his magicians are broken, right? But he overreacts a little bit. It's a little extreme in verse 12, right? Now, now we're in the decree, this decree of death. It says, because of this, the king was angry and furious. And so he just sent out a decree to have everyone killed. And here is where we have to step back and see what's going on. The magicians and the enchanters are a narrative foil. They're a foil so that we can see how actually wise Daniel is later on and how actually wise God is because these guys are a bunch of nincompoops. They're really, they're, they're, they're a, a group of idiots. And the king even knows it. So we have a group of idiots that can't talk to the gods when they're supposed to be able to talk to the gods. And we have the king of Babylon, the highest person in the kingdom, and he's paranoid and worried and thinks it's a conspiracy. And though he's the highest of all, he, now he's going to reduce himself to the greatest level of absurdity and start destroying his own people. So he's worried about another king coming in and destroying him. And in response to not knowing how that's going to end up, he starts destroying himself. Right? This is just... This is, we're at satanic proportions of absurdity here, right? If Satan's divided against his own house, how's it going to stand, right? And so the, the author is presenting us, this, these guys are idiots. The king of Babylon is upside down. It's absurd. We're, we're being presented with the laughable, mocking absurdity of what the kingdom of Babylon looks like. And the reason the author is doing this is because he's going to knock it all down later. It's like a kid building a big sandcastle, and he comes with his shovel and just smashes it. That's what the author's going to do for us to see the greatness of God in light of Babylon. And so he does this. He sends out this decree. It's not new. Egypt, Bethlehem, Esther, and Mordecai, right, in Persia. How many times have God's holy people, the Jews, been in a place, and all of a sudden the king wants just decides, let's kill them all. And what does God do? He raises up someone of wisdom, and he preserves his people. So this is not new. So Daniel is told in verse 14 that he replies with prudence and discretion. But this is funny, too. It says that he replied to Arioch with prudence and discretion in light of this decree. But, like, look what he asked him. Verse 15, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, what's the rush? Why so, so, why so harsh, man? Right? Why so urgent? Right? Prudence and discretion. He's like, hey, easy, easy, Eric. Why is the king, why is his robes in a bundle? Like, what's going on? Easy, right? Why so harsh? And that word there, urgent, it could be translated severe or urgent, but the sense is the same. I mean, he's like, hey, why the rush? So Daniel went into the king himself uh, and requested to him to appoint a time. And this is like, this is not equal treatment here, right? We're seeing the favor of God given to Daniel because the wise men, they couldn't get the time, right? You're trying to buy time. You get no time. You want to be a pile of limbs? Or you can tell me the dream. But Daniel seems to get some time to pray here. Goes right into the king, asks him for time. And we're not told that the king says, yeah, you can have time. But we know he gets time because he, then he goes and prays. He goes back to his home, gathers in prayer with his friends. And Daniel went to his house and made this known to uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in verse 17. And he, what does he tell them? Let's seek mercy. Right? They're looking death in the face. They're going to die, snuffed out, no breath, in the grave. Asks for a little bit of time, and what does he do? Goes to his friends, the church in exile, Israel in exile, and he says, you know what we should do? We should seek mercy from God. 
Let's seek mercy from God. Let's pray. God can fix this. God can turn this around. And this prayer is the beginning in this chapter of everything turning around. And it begins with prayer. And this is such an encouragement to us as a church. God hears us. God listens to us. And he delights to do the things that we ask him in faith. We're in exile. Let's seek his mercy. Let's pray. Let's trust that he will turn things around and trust his sovereign wisdom, even when it looks like it's not turning around the way we might have wanted it to. And what happens? Then the mystery, verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. He, he gets a dream about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's dreaming about dreams. I don't know if you've ever seen Inception, but that's pretty much where we're at, right? We got Daniel. He's like a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream. But what's cool is he comes back out of it and he knows what Nebuchadnezzar saw. How amazing is that? He knows what he saw. He's seen it with his own eyes and so much so that he can talk about it and tell Nebuchadnezzar later on. And then he prays. And this prayer is beautiful. And at the heart of this prayer is a few things. One is that it's God who changes the times and the seasons, right? He's sovereign. So he changes, he raises up kings and he brings them down, right? And now we're actually, we're getting to the real meat of what this passage is about. God is the one who puts kings in, takes them out. Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, America, China, doesn't matter. He puts them in, takes them down. That's what we get told here, right? He changes the times and the seasons. And look at Daniel's thankfulness and humility. He says at the beginning of the prayer that, he's, that he blesses God the Father, and then he says, to whom belong wisdom and might. And then he says in verse 23, for you have given wisdom and might. So Daniel is a man who knows that if he has wisdom, it's because it's been given to him. It's a gift. And he acknowledges that before God. These things belong to you, O Lord, and yet you've given them to your servant. Thank you, right? I give you thanks and praise for you did this. And so we can imitate Daniel. We should imitate Daniel and his friends in prayer and in that humility. So he goes in this courage of prayer and he goes to Arioch and he says, stop everything. Don't kill anyone. No one's going to die. And isn't this wonderful? A lot of people were going to die very soon. And through God's representative who's a representative of exilic judah people are saved and not just israelites babylonians are saved and you see the savor of the salt of god's people in the world not just giving good to the church but people being saved outside the church good general good coming to the world because of the church and we shouldn't miss that. Don't destroy the Babylonians. Don't destroy my friends. Don't destroy me. I've seen the dream, right? And then verse 25. So Arioch brings him in before the king. And, and what does he say? The, at the beginning, the wise men said that the Chaldeans said, no man on earth can do this. This is crazy. You're a psycho. Nobody can be found who can do this. And then what does Arioch say later in the chapter? I found somebody. I found a man. Right? So here we go again. These, these guys don't know what they're talking about. These magicians, they're staring into old goat's livers and trying to figure out what the gods are doing, and they can't do it. 
And so it's, it's this irony of Arioch saying, I found a man. And it's more ironic of where he's from. He's not Babylonian. He's a poor, po-dunk slave from Judah that's been smashed and sloshed. It's the smoke from the temples probably still wafting in the air from being destroyed from Babylon. They were a laughingstock to Babylon. Babylon was great and beautiful and covered with gold, and yet it's the man from Judah. It's the exile from Judah who can do this, right? And the magicians are like, really? Are you kidding me? Because, like, we just, we just got saved because of what Daniel's intervening here. But if he gives him the dream, we might get killed anyway because <laughs> it's going to show how enabled we are, how, how we are not who we say we are. We don't know what the gods think and will be revealed as such. So the king said to Daniel, and the author tells us that Daniel's name was Belsh- Belteshazzar. He just throws that in there. By the way, his name was Belshazzar. And here's an irony. His name is Bel which is the top of the Babylonian pantheon, Marduk. He was called Bel. For, it's Akkadian for Belu. It means Lord, right? The top guy. And so Daniel's called Marduk, the top guy. And Marduk, the top guy, is about to tell the king how it's actually the God of Israel who reveals mysteries. And that's the irony here, right? And Daniel is humble. We got to pick that up in verse 27. He's humble. No wise men. Well, this is, this is funny because Daniel is called a wise man earlier in the book, and now he says no wise man can do this, right? And he says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, right? And he says to you, king, he's shown what's going to happen, but God can, right? The God of Israel can. And then he goes on, verse 30, but as for me, I'm not special. I'm not, I'm not greater than anyone else. It's not because of me that this has happened, it's because God is able, right? And how wonderful is that? That even in Daniel's, Daniel is, has seen this dream. He's done what these Chaldeans could never do. And he's humble before this king. And he treats him with respect. And he honors him in a way before him in his presence, right? And so he tells him, you saw, O king. And he tells him that he saw this great image and that it was there was brightness flashing off it, and it was, its appearance was frightening, and it, ha- it had a head and chest and arms of silver, and it was this mixture of metals and precious metals and clay and iron and all this stuff. And we, and we should at least sympathize a little bit with Nebuchadnezzar here. This is a freaky image. This is crazy. Like, this is wild. And then the stone, it, it's just like nobody cuts it out. It just, like, cuts itself out of, a, out of a rock and then, like, smashes the whole thing, and it comes crashing down. I'd probably wake up and be a little panicked, too. I'd be a little freaked out too, you know, so we should level with Nebuchadnezzar here. This is a frightening dream. We're told by Daniel himself that the appearance was frightening, that it was, it was scary, right? It was terrifying. And he sees the stone, and the stone gains victory, right? The stone comes and smashes this image. It's interesting that this image is a human. This image is human. Head, legs, middle, thigh, chest, arms. It's a human. It's a big human, and it gets smashed by this stone, right, by this non-human stone. No human hands cut it out, smashes the human, right? But this stone then spreads and becomes, and it grows. We know stones don't grow, but this stone grows, <laughs> right? You're like, you have a stone, it doesn't grow. This stone grows. Weird stuff, but it's cool stuff, but it's weird stuff. This stone grows, and it fills the whole earth, right? This stone that smashes the human image fills the whole earth 
important to know here is that mountains, mountains, right? Mountains are places where the gods meet with men, right? And even think about our God, the God of Israel, the one true God. Where does he meet Israel and come into covenant marriage with her? On a mountain. That's not an accident. And it's not an accident here that there's mountains involved. And so he says, look, king, in verse 37 and 38, he gets down to the gist of it. He says, you're the head of gold. And he says, you're over everything. You're over men. You're over beasts and birds and, and creeping things and all this whole bit. And it reminds us of Genesis 1.26, right? The image is a human image, right? And Nebuchadnezzar is the head of this human image. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and all that creeps on it. So Nebuchadnezzar is in whose place? Adam's. Nebuchadnezzar has been put in Adam's place. And how's he doing, right? That's the question. How you doing with your dominion, with your rulership? You've been given everything. You've been given the whole world. Fish and birds and things in the air and things on the ground. It's all yours. And even adds in something, even the children of men. That's not even in Genesis 126. It doesn't say humans are going to rule over humans. But he says you're, you're a human ruling over humans. And well, why is he add that in? I don't know. Maybe because it was just obvious. <laughs> he, he was ruling over humans. So if he was ruling over humans, then God must have gave him the ability to rule over humans. So he was. Right? And then another kingdom is seen. Right? This is part of the interpretation. There's another kingdom, and it's going to be inferior to you. Right? A second kingdom. And then there's a third kingdom of bronze. It'll rule over all the earth. And then a fourth kingdom. And it'll smash all those. And there's all this about it's partly clay and it's partly iron and it's weak and it's strong. And there's something about these marriages. And some scholars say, well, this is a marriage alliance that the kingdoms were trying to build together. And I don't know how to untie all that. I just know there's four of them. <laughs> there's four of them. Babylon's one. And this last one, this fourth one, is going to overtake the other ones, right? As the ones overtook the ones previous to them. And this is, this is why now you start getting why Nebuchadnezzar is worried. He's seeing this dream that seems to look like it's a succession of kingdoms. And he doesn't want to be the next one rolled over at, right? And so Daniel gets all the way down to it. In verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Right now, this is God's kingdom. Now it's God's turn. Right? There's going to be this kingdom and that kingdom, all in Adam's place, all trying to do what Adam was supposed to do, failed to do, and humans have been failing to do since Adam. Right? Now this kingdom, the, the God's kingdom, right, shall never be destroyed, shall not be left to another people. Right? We've got four things here. Shall not be destroyed, shall not be left to another people, will break in pieces all the kingdoms before it, like the kingdoms before it did. But this one is different. It'll stand forever. Right? We have a negative and a positive. Won't be destroyed, will not be destroyed. It will stand forever. Right? That's just a way to say this thing ain't going anywhere. This stone that grows, fills the whole earth, it's not going anywhere when it comes about. Right? And here we have an added detail. Right? Daniel adds something in. He didn't say this when he told the dream first, and he's saying this in the interpretation. Right? Verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from where? From a mountain, this stone without human hands is cut from a mountain, the place 
where God meets us, the place where the gods are thought to live and abide. And mountains for us are different, right? Not, we're not like ancient thinkers. Mountains for us are like you climb that thing, you bring a flower up there, and you put it, you know, and you put a note on it, and put it under a rock, and then you come back later and take it, you know, and you, you take pictures of your family and stuff like that. Like ancients don't think about really tall mountains like that because they don't get up at the top. Like they don't get up there. That's a place where human eyes don't see. They don't go. Human beings don't go. They can't breathe up there. They can't live up there. They have no oxygen tanks. That's where the gods live, right? So this stone is cut from a mountain, right? It comes from the meeting place of God and man, where the gods come down from the top and they bump into human beings. That's where the stone comes from. And so we come to the resolution of the chapter, right? So he confesses, Look, a great God has made this known to you, Nebuchadnezzar, he says in verse 45. And then this is interesting. Then we're told, and this is a complete reversal, and we should see this. Like the whole chapter is totally flipped out on its end. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to kill everyone, including Daniel. Now what does he do? Then Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Nebuchadnezzar thinks this guy's a god. He thinks he's a god. He, he probably practically thinks he's the stone cut down from the mountain <laughs> and, and, and just about ready to fill the old earth because he's thinking himself too, like the Chaldeans. Nobody can know this stuff, right? And some people have said, ooh, this is bad. You know, Daniel doesn't stop him from doing it, and this is like man worship and what's going on here. That's not the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative is how ironic is it that by the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that this guy, this exilic from Judah, is a god. And he's bowing down to him, and Daniel is fully vindicated, and he's like offering incense up to it. It's partly funny, but it's partly striking and ironic that God's people are the one to whom the king of the nations bows down, right? That is striking, and it's not new. Isaiah 49, 23, right? When Isaiah spoke to the exiles, what did he say in Isaiah 49, 23? Kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. They will bow down before you and they will lick the dust of your feet. Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. He was licking the dust of this discarded death fodder just some verses before, and now he's basically worshiping him. And the king answered, he confesses, your God, not Marduk, not Nebo, his son, not Enlil, not this God or that God from Assyria, none of these other places, no God of ours, your God is the God at the top. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. And he reveals mysteries because you were able, you were able, Daniel, my Chaldeans couldn't do it. My magicians failed. They couldn't do it. You did it. And I, I honor your God. And it's important here. I've, I've seen people take these verses and they say, look, he converted to Christianity. In the ancient world, it's not that simple. You could really have a pantheon of gods and kind of take another one and just put him at the top. <laughs> like, like there are inscriptions where like, you know, people have, have inscriptions of sort of Yahweh hanging out with these other false gods on inscriptions in stone from the ancient world. So we know that in the ancient world, it was kind of like you could add a god in. Like we think like you got to pick one. Like 
pick this God or that God. Like, you know, do you want this car or that car? What, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Like with gods in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. So technically, it doesn't mean he was converted to monotheism. But what it does mean is he acknowledges that Yahweh is supreme. And that's incredible from the mouth of the king of Babylon. That We should be like, wow, this is insane. It's totally turned upside down now, right? And so the, the, the resolution is fully here. Daniel is exalted. He's the boss now of the Chaldeans and the magicians and the sorcerers. He's the boss. He got promoted. Well, these guys stink. Daniel, you teach, you teach them how to pray and go get dreams because they can't do it, you know? So he's the boss now, and his friends are the boss. And that's going to change, of course, in chapter 3 because uh, our, our king is just, he's all over the map. You know, he's kind of crazy. So chapter 3 is going to be another problem. But what do we learn? What do we take from all of this with the irony and the, the funny and the theological and all that built together? Well, number one is, is just simple. God is sovereign. God is sovereign and supreme over all gods and kings and kingdoms. And he redeems his faithful people from death. We know that. It's right in the text. But then two, it is not a stretch at all for Christians to see that this chapter is pointing us all the way to our Lord Jesus. It is. Think about all the themes that have been developed in this chapter, right? Who's the king? Whose kingdom is the real kingdom and is the big kingdom, right? Do gods dwell with men? Well, the ancient world would answer that no, right? And many people still answer that. No, the gods stay up there. They stay up there and they camp on mountains. They stay up there. They never come down to us. They don't. So that's impossible, Nebuchadnezzar, because gods are up there. Men are down here, right? Do gods really dwell with men? I don't know. A man from Judah, right? That's a theme that's entered. Why is it the man from Judah who can reveal mysteries, who, who knows the Lord's mysteries? Why is that statue a human image? Why is it a human? Right? If God's so upset about, you know, what humans are doing, then why is the image a human? Why is Adam made out of dust, right? Why is he human? You know, a stone cut from the mountain, not with human hands, right? That place where God and man can sort of meet, maybe. They get close enough, far enough up, right? It's from the mountain, and it's a never-ending kingdom. All of these themes are just asking us to go, to go looking for where's this kingdom? Who's the king? How do I find this kingdom that doesn't get toppled by another kingdom. And then finally, Daniel is practically the image of a God-man at the end of this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar mistakes him for a God who's come down stairs. And that's part of the wonder, is that Nebuchadnezzar was told, gods don't do that. And then Daniel says, I'll tell you your dream straight up, because there's a God in heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, oh my gosh, a God has come down. God's here. Go get the incense. Kill a fatted ram. Like, let's get this thing going because he's standing right here. Right? And all of these themes. And so it's not an accident, right? Uh, Larry was asking me, what, what verse do you want to read before the, before the sermon? I said Matthew 24, 42 to 44. Right, where Jesus tells a par- parable about being rejected by the Pharisees. And he says, haven't you read? Haven't you guys read the stone that the builders rejected? It's become the cornerstone. It wasn't a human thing. It was the Lord's doing. No human hands here. It was the Lord's doing. And guess what? It's marvelous. It's a cause for praise and glory and delight in the earth. And do you know what else? Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. 
And now he's, quote, he's basically quoting from Daniel. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Whoever this stone falls on will be crushed. This is the kingdom that's in me. This is who I am, son of David, Messiah, given for Israel. This is who I am standing in front of you. You've rejected the stone of Daniel chapter two. And so when our Lord Jesus reads his Old Testament in this chapter, he says, I'm the stone. Jesus says, I am that stone. And it's no wonder that the Pharisees were livid. You're not that stone. Who are you from Nazareth? Who are you from Galilee? A couple trips down to Jerusalem, and who do you think you are? Right? You're not that stone. And Jesus says, I'm that stone. I'm that stone that crushes all kingdoms, sweeps them aside, and stands forever. And Jesus glories in that. When he reads this, he says, that's me. That's our Lord. And it ends with a mystery. God reveals mysteries. And what's the mystery? That this stone who's supposed to crush is crushed. There, there's a mystery for you. Jesus goes to a Roman cross. He doesn't take out the Romans. He doesn't take out the Greeks. He doesn't take out the Pharisees. He's taken out. The stone that's supposed to crush is crushed. The stone that's supposed to break is broken. And so no wonder Paul, all through the New Testament, says this is a mystery. The wisdom of the wise, the Chaldeans, the sorcerers, and the, the Pharisees, that's all foolishness. But the foolishness of God, the stone that's supposed to crush, that's crushed, that is true wisdom. And so just like Nebuchadnezzar bowed down before Daniel and worshipped him, so will all the nations come and bow down to our Lord Jesus, the stone, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this chapter. We thank you for, we thank you for Daniel. Thank you that he was faithful in exile. Thank you that he prayed. Thank you that you answered him, that you loved him, that you put mercy on him, or that you put mercy on us. Thank you for Jesus, the stone, the stone. He's filling the whole earth. Lord, the hope of glory, Christ in you, Christ in us, Christ in the world, Lord, that we are that image, hands and feet, and, and he's the head. He's the head of gold, O oh Lord. He's the image, and we're his image in the world, and Lord, we thank you. May we be worthy of that. May we be worthy to be honored in such a way, and Lord, may you forgive us because we're sinful. May you cleanse us and always provide for us a fitting and eternal atonement. Lord, help us. We need your help always in exile. Lord, we're not at home here. We're strangers and foreigners in this land, and yet we trust in you. We will not be put to shame because you, O oh Lord, our God, we pray in your name. Amen.